The year is 1855, and it's a cool spring day on Mosquito Creek in the newly established territory of Kansas. Near present-day Lane, we find a recently staked claim, square, counted off by 1,000 paces each side. Sweat pours down the face of August Bondi, a Jewish man from Vienna who has taken ownership of the land. He's in the process of chopping wood and dragging it to the foundation for the home he will build. The backbreaking work of the last few days has taken its toll and he is exhausted. He sits and he rests. His mind wanders as he surveys this beautiful new territory. He notes the stark difference in the wild, untamed wilderness he sees in front of him and the bustling city of Vienna where he spent his youth. The beauty masks the scourge of slavery, which threatens to take hold in this land. It is the same plague that almost broke his people so very long ago. In a final moment of respite, he admires the lush green around him as he is pulled from his reflection by an approaching rider. The man arrives and dismounts. He waves at our greenhorn farmer. The man seems nice enough, and as they approach each other, he puts his hand out to shake. Before any introductions, though, the stranger looks him in the eyes and asks, Slaver or abolitionist? This was not the first time August had gotten this question. Kansas was a newly formed territory and would have to vote whether or not to allow the evils of slavery. Border ruffians, as they were called, were pouring in from Missouri, terrorizing the local population and swaying the vote towards slavery illegally. This was bleeding Kansas, and violence was the only form of debate. Now, August had come a very long way to be here, and he did so for two reasons, to open up a store and to whoop slavers. His inventory was still months away. Without breaking eye contact, he proudly stated abolitionist. The smile slowly faded from the man's face, as did August's, and their eyes went narrow. The man loudly stated, we know what to do with you goddamn abolitionists here. Their hands slowly moved towards their waists, preparing for a showdown that could only end one way. As August's hand made its way south, his heart dropped as he remembered his trusty Colt 45 was not on his hip, but stowed in his wagon. His eyes went wide, and as the slaver drew, he threw himself to the ground. The maneuver caused the man's bullets to sail over August's head. He charged forward and closed the distance, grabbing the gun with his left hand and pushing it to the side. The other hand flattened the slaver's nose. The man stumbled backwards, fell on his back, and dropped his gun. August followed right after the man, but stayed on his feet. He stood over him and said, You said what you came here to, now get. The slaver scurried back to his horse and galloped off. August knew they would be coming back, and when they did, he would be ready. Welcome to Badass Jews. My name is Andrew Davidsberg, and I will be your host as we dig into the untold stories of the athletes, spies, soldiers, and all-around tough guys that live their life in true Maccabean style. We'll dig into the legends of those Hebraic heroes who made our people proud, whether it was winning gold, saving drowning children, or throwing Nazis through plate glass windows. The legends of these Yids range from superhuman strength to unequaled bravery. Never starting the fight, but always finishing it. This edition will follow the story of August Bondi, freedom fighter, abolitionist, and badass Jew.
It's March of 1848 and the city of Vienna is filled with unrest. At this time, the Austrian Empire is a force in world affairs, and while King Ferdinand sits on the throne, Clemens von Metternich pulls the strings. Metternich rules with an iron grasp and has violently suppressed any challenge to his authority. Inspired by revolutions around the world, students in Vienna have organized and aimed to fight the dictator. On March 13th, they amass just outside the old city walls. It is here we find young August Bondi, nay Anschul, filled with youthful furor. He has joined the Academic Legion, a soon-to-be-armed group of students fighting for freedom and liberty, a fight that would continue his entire life. August was born in 1833, making him just under 15 years of age. His father, Hertz, and mother, Martha, were middle-class Jews from distinguished European families. They were loving parents and raised their children to fight for what they believed in. August would always remember his mom teaching that as a Jew, he had the duty to defend institutions which gave equal rights to all beliefs. These values were front and center in the platform of the revolution. They were freedom of conscience, freedom of the press, and freedom to teach and learn. As the students stood outside the main gate, a smaller gate to the side swung open to allow out a guard unit. The protesters streamed in, overwhelming the guards with their sheer numbers. August pushed to the front and was at the head of the crowd of thousands, screaming, Constitution, and down with Metternich. He led as they streamed into the plaza in front of the palace, continuing their act of civil disobedience. The provincial council housed here made their way out to the balcony and requested silence. Finally, we are being heard, thought August, expecting a reply to their demands. He joyously hugged the man standing next to him, Heinrich Spitzer, a fellow Jew and an 18-year-old student. At the front of the crowd, August had the perfect vantage to see soldiers spill out and position themselves in front of the students. With no warning, they opened fire. In the first volley alone, several students were killed. Standing to his side, Heinrich Spitzer was shot through the heart and fell into August, bringing him to the ground. With bayonets fixed, the soldiers plowed into the crowd and unable to move, August was struck twice with the butt of a rifle and sliced with a bayonet as well. With the charge moving past him and in a heroic feat, he dragged Spitzer from the crowd. Unfortunately, by the time he made it to a side street, Spitzer was dead. August limped back home and prepared to fight another day. August would return the next day armed, along with much of the academic legion, and over the next few months they would help secure the city. Once his allies got full control of the city, he was instrumental in the defense. In his biography he writes, My children, it was your father who, not yet 15 years old, had lifted the first granite paving block to start the barricade in Vienna. For six months, he would stand with his compatriots at arms, losing many friends, and all the while continuing his studies. In September, his parents decided to seek opportunity in America and convinced him to accompany them. He wept as he left his comrades, but he knew the time had come. Only one month later, the city would fall. The Bondi family made their way by train to Prague, then Bremen, where they boarded the Rebecca bound for New Orleans. En route, they stopped in Belize, where August was horrified by the first instance of slavery he would encounter. Seeing black slaves working the sugar plantations with only empty potato sacks as clothing shook him to the core. 
Arriving in New Orleans, they boarded a steamer on its way to their final destination in St. Louis. Finally in America, August tried his hand at many trades in the city. He swept floors, was a typesetter, and worked at a tannery. He started a successful dry good business, then lost all his profits when his money belt sprung a leak. He opened a tavern, then left to study math. He was restless to say the least. In October of 1951, at the age of 15, August found adventure aboard the steamship Brazos. He boarded in Galveston, hired because of his ability to read and write, and rode with the ship up and down the Trinity River. Two events would occur while on the Brazos that would steer him for the rest of his life. On his first journey down the river, the Brazos was anchored in Trinity Bay. August sat watching the beautiful ducks and geese as they lazily glided and slept on the water's surface. Near the ship, a small skiff floated by out for a hunt on the water. A young black man who was managing the ship worked the oars while a young white man sat with his little shotgun loaded ready to fire. All was still on the water until the ship's manager accidentally let his oar fall. The silence was broken by a large splash and the duck startled took flight. In a fit of rage, the white man yelled and fired his loaded gun into the shoulder of the ship manager, knowing there would be no consequences. August reeled and yelled in disgust, using words that were not fit to print. Behind him, he heard approaching footsteps and he turned to find Reverend Roach. He assumed a man of the cloth would be there to support him. The bishop stared him right in the eyes and said, We have no use for northern abolitionists, and it's only your age that protects you from deserved punishment. August was young and not prepared to react. This would not have stood with the man he would become. The second incident occurred near Galveston. The ship had been running behind, so the crew had been working for two days straight with little to no sleep. When they finally reached port, the captain and most of the crew went to get a good night's sleep, leaving August behind to oversee enslaved men that loaded and unloaded the ship. August, not a slave owner himself, had always treated the men with kindness and had friendly relationships with them. This night, however, the poor men were exhausted and running behind schedule. In a moment of weakness, August raised his hand and struck a man by the name Ike. Ike turned and said with sad eyes, I didn't think that of you. August would write in his biography, this cut me to the heart. And as the unloading proceeded, he gave thought to who he was and what he stood for. He realized he was becoming what he hated. He learned about the values of freedom and liberty from his parents and religion, and he had just raised his hand to another man. The violence had come from a learned view that the man was not his equal because of the color of his skin. This was not who he was. That same day, he walked away from the Brazos. He didn't know what his destination was yet, but he knew it didn't lie here. August Bondi returned to St. Louis to be close to his parents and spent another three years trying to find himself. He once again bounced from job to job and looked for a purpose. Finally, in 1855, he found that purpose with the Kansas-Nebraska Bill. The bill stated that residents of new territories would vote to decide if slavery would be legal within their borders. A notice in the New York Tribune called for lovers of freedom to make Kansas their home. At this time, there were just under 3,000 eligible voters in Kansas, so he could truly make a difference there. August packed up his Colt revolver and booked passage on the Polar Star, a steamer headed to Kansas. A 
Upon his arrival in Kansas, August and his partner, Jacob Benjamin, decided to make claims near the Missouri border on Mosquito Creek. Within a few days, Bondi had been visited by border ruffians described at the top of the story, and his life threatened if he didn't leave Kansas. As always, he ignored the threats. The next few days were spent building their lodging and setting up their general store. August paid the son of a neighboring claim, Philip, to help him in construction. One day the two were shearing bark from a log, which involved August pulling away the bark and Philip slicing it with an axe. Philip was not being as careful as he should and slipped removing the top two knuckles from two of August's fingers. August, proving that he had the grit for the strenuous life, simply placed the two fingers in his mouth and stated, I believe you have cut me. August also found time to form alliances that would serve him well. The first, another Jew named Theodor Wiener. Theodore was a Polish Jew, and a large one at that. At 250 pounds and nearing six feet tall, he was famous in the area for thrashing Dutch Bill, a six foot four slaver. Wiener and August would be close friends and fight together throughout the battles to come. August also met Jason and Owen Brown, sons of John Brown, the famous abolitionist. Realizing they had a brother in the cause, they offered their assistance should he need it. We are four brothers, well armed, they stated. Over the next several months, August would take ill with what he described as intermittent fever. While he was recovering at home in St. Louis, clashes between abolitionists and slavers grew in intensity. He returned in early May to a state in chaos. On May 21, 1956, a group of over 750 slavers would stream across the border into the town of Lawrence, Kansas, about 45 miles north of August's claim. The rabble was led by Federal Marshal Israel B. Donaldson and Sheriff Samuel J. Jones. Jones had been driven from the town for his pro-slavery beliefs. While in the town, this unsavory bunch destroyed the free newspapers and attempted to disarm all those living in the town. Not one person surrendered their private weapons, but they did commandeer the city's cannon, Old Sacramento. In a fit of rage, Douglas attempted to blow up the city's lodging called the Free State Hotel using his newly acquired cannon. His first shot sailed fully over the building to the town's delight. The next shot broke a few windows and bounced off the side. He then attempted to blow it up to no avail. Finally out of options, he burned it to the ground. The people of Lawrence dispatched a runner who made their way to John Brown Sr. who had arrived during Bondi's absence. The runner asked for reinforcements and help. August, along with Theo, volunteered to join the expedition and suited up. They made their way just a few miles to Middle Creek before learning the U.S. military had ordered all armed in Lawrence to disperse. Though the crisis in Lawrence had been averted, Potawatomi Creek was now in danger, so they headed due west. On account of his illness, August sat this battle out. It would go down in history as the Potawatomi Creek Massacre. John Brown's forces executed seven pro-slavery activists in order to deter more violence against free staters. Just a few days on, on May 26, the rider from Prairie City approached John Brown about providing protection. More slavers had crossed the border and were harassing their village about supporting freedom. August and his company saddled up and found their way to Taway Creek just outside Prairie City. It was here that August learned abolitionists had burned down his cabin and had looted his store. They had stolen everything he had. He knew he should return home to rebuild, but instead he stayed to continue the fight, unwilling to abandon the cause. The next morning, Brown's men captured riders sent to harass the town 
and extracted from them the whereabouts of Missourian forces. That evening they attacked and Bondi was in the vanguard. The approach to the enemy was uphill and Bondi recounts the experience. We followed Captain Brown up the hill towards the border ruffians camp. I next to Brown and advance of Wiener, we walked with bent backs, nearly crawled that the tall dead grass of the year before might somewhat hide us from the border ruffian marksmen, and yet the bullets kept whistling on. Wiener was 37 and weighed 250 pounds, I 22 in lithe. Wiener puffed like a steamboat hurrying behind me. I called out to him, Nu, was meinen suggest? Well, what do you think of it now? His answer, was soll ich meinen? What should I think of it? Suf Adam Muves. The end of man is death, or in slang, I guess we're up against it. In spite of the whistling bullets, I laughed when he said, Machen wir den alten Mann sonst Brogus? Look out, or we'll upset the old man. For the duration of the three hour battle, Bondi would stay on the line with his 1812 rifle, even as others made various excuses to move to the rear guard. His flintlock would serve him well, as the enemy slowly lost their will and finally agreed to unconditional surrender to John Brown. This battle is considered to be the first major skirmish in the border wars, and the abolitionists had won the first round. August would continue the battle in Kansas and join the Kansas militia fighting for free state. Until 1858, he participated in various skirmishes to help support the cause. He and John Brown parted ways before the ill-fated raid on Harper's Ferry, where John Brown would lose his life. In 1858, Kansas was voted a free state. That same year, in 1858, he met his wife Henrietta, and in 1860, having moved to Salina, Kansas, his house became a station on the Underground Railroad. Helping escape slaves make their way to freedom was not a safe venture, but both he and his wife believed it was the right thing to do. In 1861, he volunteered to fight for the Union, knowing he could not sit idly by while the battle for freedom continued. For three years, he fought through Kansas and Arkansas, until in 1868, his company encountered fierce resistance at Monticello Crossroads near Pine Bluff. The Kansas company had two howitzer cannons in their possession, and they were necessary for the company's survival. Overmatched, Company K began to break and flee, but the safety of the guns needed to be ensured. Bondi, at this point a sergeant, was instructed to hold the line so the cannons could be removed safely. As much of the company made a hasty retreat, August continued to lead, even as he was hit in the thigh by an enemy bullet. His orders then came to march forward, and as he did, a bullet struck him, above the knees but below the belt, for the exact location you can use your imagination. He was left on the battlefield, and as night fell, he knew this could be his end. His eyes slowly closed, the pain almost unbearable. He knew if he passed out, he was done, so he maintained his consciousness. Morning broke, and with it, a concerned citizen named Evans, whose sons were fighting for the Confederacy, came to his rescue. He brought Bondi ten miles to his home, where he fed and dressed his wounds. A few days later, a truce allowed him to be transferred to a Union hospital, where even gangrene couldn't end him. In 1864, he was released and made his way back home to his family. In case you're worried about permanent damage, don't be. He would go on to have seven more children with Henrietta.
August Bondi graduated from law school in 1880 and was elected a probate judge, police judge, and served as a postmaster. He was also on the board of trustees in Salinas. In 1900, his wife would pass away, and in 1903, August went to live with his daughter's family in St. Louis. In 1907, August Bondi died after collapsing in the street from heart failure. There is an old saying that goes, heroes aren't born, they are made. This is the ultimate truth when it comes to August Bondi. His entire life he had a fire for justice, but it took self-reflection for him to realize he was traveling down the wrong road. A misbegotten act of anger and frustration led him to realize the errors and dangers of complacency as he turned his fire from justice for himself to justice for others. His character and life experience made him into the hero he should be remembered as, and his errors should help guide us all. August Bondi, freedom fighter, abolitionist, and badass Jew. I hope you enjoyed the story of August Bondi. As always, a short podcast just scratches the surface of this amazing man's life. If you are interested in learning more, you can pick up Border Hawk by Lloyd Alexander. It's intended for young adults, but it's a fun read. If you are looking for a deeper dive, you can get August Bondi's autobiography printed and bound via Google Books. It was written in the early 1900s, so it's a little tough to follow, but it will give you a good picture of this complicated hero. Once again, this is Andrew Davidsberg reminding you that just because you're a Jew, it doesn't mean you can't be a badass too.